and turn, if you would, to 1 John 5, if you're not already there. As we come to the end of uh, 1 John, we find John completing his letter by returning to the first of his three tests. What is your relationship to sin? In our section today, he reminds us that God hears our requests, specifically as we intercede for others, and that victory over sin assures us that we know God. And today we'll see that true believers intercede with God and find certain life in knowing God. First of all, true believers intercede with God, verses 13 through 17. So building on verses 5 through 12, where he finished with, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. John addresses his readers as those you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, Clearly, verse 13 ties very closely with what came right before it, but it also anticipates what comes after it, so it's very much a transitional verse, uh, which is why we're taking it with the beginning of this section, but it also goes with verse 12. Here's the point that he's making in verses 13 through 15. If you believe in God, you find assurance of life and of answered prayer. If you believe in God, you find assurance of life and of answered prayer. We see in verse 13 that John's tests help you to know that you have eternal life. These things I have written. What has he written? If you say you have no sin, then you're calling God a liar. You're not following him the right way. If you don't deal with your sin, then it's very difficult, if not impossible, for you to say that you belong to God because those who belong to God deal with sin. God doesn't tolerate sin. God forgives sin, but it has to be dealt with. If you deal with sin, it means you're not going to love the world that is opposed to God. And so that's another aspect of dealing with sin. That's the first test. How do you deal with sin? The second test. How do you relate to your brother? Do you love your brother or do you hate your brother? If you say you love your brother, but you actively try to harm him, you don't love him, you hate him. You're like Cain who murdered his brother. And you might not murder those around you, But if you express hatred like Cain, that's the first step down the path toward the act that Cain committed. And Cain, uh, John lays out, was behaving like Satan. Satan, Jesus says in the book of John, it was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He was the one who motivated Cain to kill Abel. He is the one who lied to Adam and Eve. He is the one who has stood behind all of these sinful acts since then, uh, provoking them and wanting to see them take place and encouraging people toward them. I'm not denying the reality that sometimes it is our own flesh or the world broadly speaking, but Satan is the one who uses the opportunities of our flesh and who uh, promotes sinful activity in the world as a whole. So we cannot say we love God if we don't love our brother. So that's the second test. Do you love your brother? Not just do you not try to do harm to him, but do you actively try to serve and to help your brother? If you don't, you can't really say that you love him. If I'm indifferent to my wife and kids, I don't beat them, I don't starve them, I don't mistreat them in in any sort of really obvious way, but I ignore them and I never do anything with them and I never talk to them, can't really say that I love them. I might say that I don't hate them in a really malicious way, but I certainly can't say that I love them. And so God says the same thing. If you see a brother or sister in need and you ignore that need and you say, I don't care about that, 
It's really difficult for you to say, yes, I love my brother in the way that John is arguing we need to as followers of God. What's your relationship to sin? We should hate sin, find forgiveness of it, and not love the world characterized by sin. What's your relationship to your brother? Love your brother, don't hate him, don't ignore him, actively do good on his behalf. Third test, what's your relationship to Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, come in the flesh as the Son of God to save the world from sin, and that he is the only way to God, that he is the one that you need to trust with the entirety of your life to find payment for sin and satisfaction of God's wrath against your sin and all of those things that you need as a sinner, if that's what you believe about Jesus, then you also, as this passage we look at today, is going to point out, you also have a relationship with God the Father. You have the promises of God about resurrection and eternal life and all of those sorts of things. What's your relationship to Jesus? If, on the other hand, you deny him and you say, Jesus is not God, Jesus did not come in the flesh, Jesus is not the one sent by God, the Messiah, to save the world. Jesus didn't die for sin. Jesus didn't pay for sin. Jesus is a myth. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus says, fill in the blank. That's not what the Bible says. You can't really claim to have a relationship with God because John said in his gospel, Jesus is the only way to God. So if you deny that Jesus the Bible lays out, you don't have a relationship with the God of the Bible. Jesus is the only path to him. John's test, thus, verse 13, help you to know that you have eternal life. I think it's important, in light of what's going to come next, that we think that this knowledge is sort of a fixed point that continues without any further doubts or examination or consideration. If we say, on the basis of some past event, I know that I have eternal life. But there is no active pursuit of God. There is no ongoing evaluation based on the tests in 1 John. There is no real desire to grow in our walk with God. That's not the kind of knowledge that John is talking about. And unfortunately, when it comes to truth about God or things that we hear in churches, we tend to latch on to one thing and ignore everything else. In other words, you can know that you have eternal life. That's true. That's what it says. So then we say, I can know without any doubts for the rest of my life, without ever checking up on it, without ever thinking about it, without ever asking any questions, I can know that I have eternal life. And then sometimes we equate that with a feeling. How do I know that I have eternal life? Because I feel this way about God. How do I know that I have eternal life? Because I attend church every week. How do I know that I have eternal life? Because I'm a member of a church somewhere. How do I know that I have eternal life? Because no one has ever said they don't think that I am. And John says, do you pass these three tests and do you continue to pass these three tests because, however you understand the concept of apostasy, which is going to come up in just a moment, if you are not passing John's three tests in any given moment of your life, you should not say that you have assurance just because in a past moment you did. I'm not saying that salvation is something that is fickle and unpredictable and that you can misplace. I'm saying 
It is possible to deceive yourself that you have a relationship with God when you do not. And it is possible for believers to live in extended periods of sin. And if there is no repentance, and if there is self-deceit, and if there is not matching up with what John describes, there should not be confidence or supposed knowledge that we have a relationship with God. However, if you are passing these tests, not perfectly, not 100%, but by God's grace, more and more each day, you can ask God for things in prayer. This is the confidence which we have. If we know that we have eternal life, then if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What's the first qualification for prayer to be answered? It has to be asked according to God's will. If we say, God, make me a millionaire so I never have to pray to you again, do you think God's going to answer that prayer? If we say, God, make my life easy, make me never have a difficult situation or relationship ever again because that would be really great and I never have to depend on you to work out problems in my life, do you think God's going to answer that prayer? What are prayers that God is going to answer? God, I want you to... Teach me patience. Sometimes we're hesitant to pray that prayer because it seems like a lot of opportunities to be impatient immediately follow a prayer like that. But if God answers that prayer, is that according to His will? Yes. Does that line up with things that God wants? Yes. God wants to grow in us fruits of the Spirit, which are actually all part of the same thing, like patience. If we pray that God would help us to have self-control, or to be more responsible, not so that we can say, look at how together I am, but so that we can be more effective for his use. Is he likely to answer a prayer like that? Yes, because it's according to the will that he has described in the Bible. And without getting into complicated discussions about the nature of God's will, and can we thwart God's will, and is there a difference between God's will that he knows and God's will that he's communicated to us, and all those sorts of things, I think John has in mind here, what are the things God says he wants to do in the world? And are you praying for those things? So it would go back to something like the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, whatever you want to call it. If we pray for God's kingdom to be established, for us to have an attitude of forgiveness the way that Jesus did towards sinners, for us to trust in God for our daily needs, those are the sorts of things that I think we can be confident that God is going to answer. Not always immediately, not always in the way that we want, but he will answer them. God, therefore, not only do we have to pray according to his will, but we can be confident that he hears us at the end of verse 14. Or also verse 15, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, God is not ignoring the prayers of his people. Sometimes it feels like he's not answering them immediately, and often that is because of one of two things. We have prayed in a very vague and general way, God, I pray that I would have a good day. Not a sinful prayer, but how do you know if God answered that? You have to say, well, by what standard of good are we evaluating the day? I had a conversation with the kids. Did you have a good day? If they say yes, okay, what did, what did that look like for you? Did you get in trouble in class? Did you... Uh, or did you have a good day? Did you talk with your friends, or did you ignore them? Did you look for ways to serve people around you, or did you just do whatever you felt like? Those would be specific tests 
that we could evaluate whether it's been a good day. So perhaps along those lines, when we pray prayers to God, and then we wonder if He actually heard us, maybe part of the problem is that we're not praying specifically enough. God, I pray that you would give me an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus today. Can you look back on the day and see if that happened? Absolutely. And can you look back and say, did I do it or not? Yes. Like there's, if we are specific in our prayers. Another aspect of that is that if God doesn't answer a pray, prayer the way that we want, sometimes we want to pretend like God didn't hear our prayer because we want to get it answered the way that we want it. Uh, Wednesday night, we were talking from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh. I made the case that it was probably not exclusively or primarily the fact that he seems to have had bad eyesight or had a lot of physical problems related to the beatings and everything else he experienced for preaching the gospel. I argued that it was probably Satan's work through specific people who had been ministering alongside Paul and now were actively seeking to do him harm, men like Demas, men like Alexander, others who are not named. Satan was using them as messengers to torment Paul. And Paul said, God, will you take this away? And he prayed repeatedly for it. We don't know the interval of his prayers. We don't know um, specifically how God made it clear to him that he said yes or no to those prayers. But in the end, what was the conclusion? I'm not going to take this away, but my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes we feel like we get an answer to prayer along those lines, and we say, well, that can't possibly be God's answer. He must not have heard me. God has the right to say no to our prayer. And sometimes he does. And we don't always know the reason for it, but it's not an issue with him hearing the prayer. We need to ask according to his will. We need to realize that he hears the prayer regardless of whether we get it answered in the timetable or in the way that we want, or perhaps because we've not been specific enough, it is answered, but we don't realize it. But then we need to see the third thing, that it says we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So if we ask according to his will, confident that he hears us, he will answer, and we have those requests answered. Now, in the next two verses, we have an anticipated answer of yes to a specific prayer. John goes to the specific example of interceding for brothers. He says, in verses 16 to 17, if anyone sees his brothers committing a sin not to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not to death. Specifically, if you know God will answer your prayer, you'll intercede for your brother, particularly intercede for them when we see them actively sinning. He says, pray for the one committing a sin not leading to death. So there's some important questions we need to ask. Who is being prayed for? John 17, 9, let me give you some background verses and then we'll look at these. John 17, 9, Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. 1 John 2, 1, uh, these things are written so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In the light of those two passages, plus this verse, I would make the case that if Jesus interceded for his people, it seems likely that John is doing the same. Which is not to say you can't pray for an unbeliever, but I think what John is saying here is to pray for a believer. Someone, at the very least, who is a professing Christian, described as a brother, verse 16. 
So we should pray for fellow professing believers involved in visible sin. There's lots of sin that you and I don't know about that happens in each other's lives every day. I don't think John is saying to pray for those specifically because we wouldn't know to pray for them primarily unless we saw evidence that they were taking place. So I think what he has in mind is a sin that is visible. Should we also pray for sins that are invisible to us? Yes. Should we pray that someone have right thoughts, that they would not be greedy or lustful or angry or whatever else? Yes. But specifically, I think he's saying when those things have been evidenced externally, which is when we tend to become aware of them with other people, we need to pray for that fellow brother or sister in Christ who is sinning in that way. It seems like there might be a second person or category implied by the phrase, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say he should make request for this. Now, perhaps it is a subset of the first group, as in um, a professing Christian who is doing a sin not leading to death, and then there is a sin leading to death, and a professing Christian could be doing that as well. Um, there are a host of different ideas about what all this means. Some people have said he's talking about two unbelievers. Some people have said he's talking about two believers. Some people have said he's talking about a believer and an unbeliever. I think the simplest understanding of the text is John is saying, you and I can't see people's hearts. Here's someone who said they're a brother or sister in Christ. We see that person sinning. We should pray for them. I don't think it needs to be extraordinarily more complicated than that because we could just go in this endless loop. But before we get to this idea of what is the sin not leading to death, let's think about what the sin is. Or the person committing the sin, rather. Let's think about what the sin is. What is the sin? Some more verses from John's Gospel. John 8, 24. Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 8, 34. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. 1 John 2, 1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Most commentators want to argue about whether John has a Christian or an unbeliever in mind. Is it a, a Christian who's sinning? Is it an unbeliever who's sinning? John seems to have left it vague so that we would intercede for those around us who are committing sin, and primarily those who are professing to trust in Jesus. So then what's the consequence of this sin? What is death? John 5.24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word... And believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John 8, 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 1 John 3, 14, he who does not love abides in death. We all know that sin leads to death, both physical death and spiritual death. Is it spiritual death or physical death? I think it's probably spiritual death, although John uses this word in both ways, particularly in his gospel, when he's talking to people listening, it's almost always spiritual death. When he's talking about Jesus and what he will do, it's usually physical death. If we're talking about spiritual death, and if someone is committing a sin that doesn't lead to spiritual death, versus someone who's committing a sin that does lead to spiritual death, why not pray for that sin leading to death. If it is, as some would argue, connected to false teachers, these are those who at one point professed to follow God, have openly rejected Jesus, reveled in sin, and refused to love the brothers. They, at one point, seem to be one of us, but 
have failed all three tests and left the fellowship. John is not forbidding praying for them, but he's focusing on praying for believers following Jesus' example of intercession. What's the prayer? Grant this person life. We often focus, I think, too much on judging the spiritual state of the person in these verses. Can we figure out if this person is a believer or an unbeliever? Or we might argue about what this passage means from sort of a systematic theology idea of eternal security. Can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose your salvation? John's focus is on the benefit that comes to the person that you pray for. We want to get stuck on, potentially, and at least most of the commentaries I looked at, is it a sin leading to death? Is it a sin not leading to death? What's the important phrase in verse 16? He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin. The benefit of life coming to the person you pray for is the reason that you pray, not whether you understand exactly where that person stands before God, because you and I can't 100% know that. If you pray for your brother, God will give life because you prayed. So the question I think from verse 16 we should ask is, are you praying for those in sin? What are other wrong responses we might have instead of praying for the person who's sinning? We might Gossip. Hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? We might act like there is no sin. Like in our hearts, we say, well, that's wrong. But I'm not going to, everything's fine. Talk to the person face-to-face. No discussion of it. No confrontation. No appeal. No prayer. Just everything's good. We could go to the extreme of joining into the same sin. It seems that that's what Paul was concerned about with the church at Corinth. You guys are boasting in this person's sin. Are you guys going to do the same thing? It has to be dealt with so that you don't do the same thing. There's any number of other wrong responses, although those those are three of the more common ones. John's point is that we should pray for those in sin for God to give them life. What does it mean for God to give them life? I think it is not identical, but closely connected with assurance of their relationship with God through walking with Jesus, and deliver them from that sin so that if they turned out to have been an unbeliever, they receive eternal life for the first time, and if they were a believer, they now have restored assurance of their relationship with God and the life that is a part of that because the sin has been dealt with. So if we focus on the thing John is telling us to do, we don't have to figure out Is the person a believer or an unbeliever? The act of prayer and God's follow-up answer results in the response that will reveal where a person's heart is at. So, pray. John follows that up in verse 17 by saying, All unrighteousness is sin. Some so-called Christians distinguish between sin and say, this one is really bad, that one is not so bad. This one is mortal, that one's venial. This one is unpardonable, that one's forgivable. Depending on the theological tradition, depending on all those sorts of things, there are a variety of different responses. There is clearly in the Old Testament an emphasis on deliberate instead of unintentional sin. Let me read for you a few verses from the book of Numbers, for example. Numbers 
Numbers 15, verse 17, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say, um, When you enter the land... I'm sorry, that's not the... Oh, 27, I was in verse 17. All right. If a one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for that person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native and for the alien among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Now, here's where the mortal venial distinction breaks down. Both of them are sins that you are guilty of, and both of them condemn you before God. But the one person willingly deals with it and comes to the priest and seeks something to be dealt with. And the other person just says, I am going my own way. If I forget my God, I don't care. There's another passage that sometimes people turn to in understanding this idea of all unrighteousness is sin. But maybe there's different types of unrighteousness or different types of sin. And that is the passage in Romans, or not Romans, Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus casts out a demon. And the response of the Pharisees is to say, um, in Matthew chapter 12, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the, re- the ruler of the demons. And then Jesus says in verse 31, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. And so people have concluded from that verse that any of the Pharisees who are agreeing with this assessment of Jesus committed an unpardonable sin and were uh, condemned for all of eternity with no hope of repentance. I think the... The challenge with taking that view is when we consider what it says in John chapter 12. It talks about Jesus' ministry. And it says, Many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Here are people who are professing believers in God, and I think some of them genuinely were, Nicodemus and others as well, but they're not willing to publicly confess Jesus because of the consequences it would bring on them. And before we're too hard on them, I think we should look at Peter's response when he's confronted with a similar test. If you confess Jesus, what are we going to do with you? He denies him. So here are... Pharisees, or at least rulers of the synagogues under the Pharisees, who believe in Jesus but are not willing to openly confess him. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, you have no part with me. Peter denies him and yet still has a part with him. Here's the point I'm trying to make. When we start placing sins into categories like forgivable and unforgivable, it's easy for us to come to the conclusion, well, that person has committed an unforgivable sin, so forget it, no more praying for them. Or if it's us, we are beyond hope and God can't save us. Now, are there sins that if they're not repented of, lead to that consequence? Absolutely. But if we're honest, any sin has condemned us before God. So any sin that has not been dealt with specifically and primarily 
the sin of unbelief that refuses to acknowledge Jesus as Savior, that's the sin that ultimately sends anyone and everyone to hell. Here is Jesus, and you say no. If you die rejecting Jesus, you die in your sin. Um, so John's point seems to be going back to the idea that all sin is a problem and needs to be dealt with. And by God's grace, it will then not result in death because intercession will lead to life through repentance and restoration or, or the first granting of life. When we look at these verses, how often do you think about the blessing of being able to confidently ask God for things? How often do you waste that privilege on potentially frivolous things like I lost my keys or help the weather to be better? Now, am I saying it's sinful to pray for finding your keys? No. But Jesus is not the patron saint of lost keys. Like that's a, if that's all we ever come to him for, that's a pretty shallow kind of relationship with God. And while there's nothing wrong with praying for a sunny day, and hopefully you guys enjoyed the ones that we had this week, compared to the blessing of seeing someone who is walking in sin, being restored to assurance of their relationship with God, and evidencing genuine fellowship with God and His people, whether it's a sunny day or a rainy day, versus someone's eternal state, those are important issues. This is an important issue. This is temporally important, but in the long run, you're not going to remember which day was sunny and which day was rainy for the most part. You will remember if God does a work through you, I think parallel but not identical to what James is describing, that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death. Which one should we be doing more of? When's the last time you interceded for someone? This week? Last month? Last year? Never? We ask God for things all the time. But what things are according to His will? The continued faithfulness of His people, the salvation of the lost, those are things that are pretty clearly at the heart of what God is doing in the world as a subset of things that bring him glory. So those are the things that we probably ought to be praying about a whole lot more often than a lot of the other things that we tend to pray about. In eternity, and I'm not making light of this, in eternity, the fact that you had a cold will not matter. If we escalate it, the fact that you have severe pain will not matter in eternity. And I'm not saying it's not a difficult trial right now, because it is. The fact that you didn't get the promotion that you wanted, or you missed out on the opportunity to buy a house, or something didn't go the way you wanted education-wise, or the relationship that you thought was going to work out didn't, those things while important and significant to us in the moment, and I'm not saying God doesn't care about them, I'm saying in the scope of eternity, interceding for one another's souls should be pretty high up the list. And I think that's the point that John is making here. 
He continues and says that true believers, I would summarize it this way, verses 18 through 21, find certainty of life in knowing God. Find certainty of life in knowing God. Your response to sin shows your relationship to God and to Satan. Your response to sin shows your relationship to God and to Satan. If you're born of God, then Jesus who is born of God keeps you from the evil one, I think is the sense of verse 18. The he who is born of God could be you as a child of God, but I think he's saying the first phrase, no one who is born of God sins. If you belong to God, you won't sin. Instead, he who is born of God, Jesus, keeps him the child born of God, and the evil one does not touch that child born of God. Does that mean we will never sin? No, because of all the things John has already said. But it means we should not live in sin and be okay with sin and, and think everything is fine with sin. He says in verse 19 that we can know that we're of God. How do we know? Go back to verse 13. You can know that you belong to God even though the whole world lies in Satan's power. We could say it this way. Knowing Jesus ties you to him. He defeated Satan, so you defeat Satan by his power. He died to sin, so you die to sin. He spoke what was true about himself, so you believe the truth about him. He loved the brothers, so you can love the brothers. If you pass these tests, it is only because you are connected to Jesus. If you are passing these tests, you don't have to fear the world or Satan because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So it doesn't matter that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. God is greater and will have victory over him, and we can stand secure in that. The confidence that comes in resisting temptation that Peter talks about, for example, resist the devil, stand firm in your faith, and all of those sorts of things, is not in our ability to say to Satan, I'm stronger than you, go away, you can't touch me. It is, I'm not stronger than you, but God who dwells within me is, so if he's in me, you can't touch me. Think about the example of Job. How far could Satan go? Only as far as God led him. Building on that, your true knowledge of God is evidence of your relationship with God. We see in verse 20, you know that Jesus has come. Chapter 5, verse 6 says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. We see in chapter 4, verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Chapter 2, the Antichrist is the one who denies Jesus is the Christ. So there are repeated references to this idea that Jesus has come. Since Jesus came, what has he done? He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. It would be easy to sort of reread that phrase and say we may know what is true. Because a lot of times I feel like in the context of church, we are focused on the what and not the who. I know these truths about God. Great. Do you know the God that they're about? 
That's really important. Why? Because the test is not whether you have knowledge of God. James says the demons tremble and shudder because they know that God is real and they fear his judgment. But whether you have a relationship with God. The demons do not have a relationship with God. That was broken when they were cast out of heaven. You and I can have a relationship and ought to have a relationship with God. And it's not disconnected from truth. But it's more than just knowing truths or facts or things about God. So since Jesus came, he gave you understanding to know the Father who is true. Truth points to the one who is true. Knowledge about God should point to God. It shouldn't stop with the knowledge. It should continue in our experiential relationship with him. Knowing God our Father and being in Him means also being in Jesus. We are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Father, Son, and Spirit, knowledge of the triune God is eternal life. John's made this point before. John 17, I think it's verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know your Son, that you've sent, and the one true God. Eternal life is not exclusively or limited to knowledge of facts. Eternal life is a relational knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In that sense... And I don't mean this in any kind of irreverent way, but I think there's a parallel here. When it says in the book of Genesis that Adam knew Eve and the result was children, that's more than just a casual acquaintance. There is a relationship and a closeness and an openness and a... a personal aspect of it that is completely different from just, I know so-and-so at the store because I see him every few weeks. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people who think that they know God, their relationship with God is kind of like their relationship with someone who's in the checkout aisle at a grocery store they go to every, every so often. Yeah, I know that person. I've seen their name. We might talk a little bit, but that's it. And God's not looking for that from you. And God's not wanting you to rest confident in the fact that you really know him if that's all that you have. So, knowing Jesus links you with God, the Father, and guarantees your eternal life, not because of you, but because of God's work in you. John's next statement might seem surprising, but it's still connected to this idea. To us, it might seem abrupt when John says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Where did that come from? John addresses his readers as little children, those who need to be warned of danger and for whom he cares deeply. John at this point is potentially in his 80s or 90s when he's writing this letter. So let's be honest, when you're in your 80s and 90s, everybody else is kind of little children to you. And if you have any sort of concern, fatherly, grandfatherly, motherly, grandmotherly concern for them, you are going to say, and most people don't take offense of it, 
if you were to say, hey, let me tell you something. It gets weird when the waitress that's younger than you is like, hey, sweetie, what would you like? What's your order? That, that gets strange, you know? She's like 18. I'm almost 40. She's like, hey, sweetie, what's your order? I'm... It just feels weird. Maybe, that, maybe it's just me. But when there is that genuine relationship, spiritually and in terms of actual age of a, of a concern for those who are coming after you, there's going to be this kind of language addressing them. John's point is that truly knowing God means you're going to be on your guard against false gods. Why does John say, watch out for idols? Guard yourselves from idols. Well, let's think about what he said in the letter. There are many antichrists. So there are many substitutes for the true Christ. There are false teachers who have gone out from among you. Eternal life is only found in the one true God. If all those things are true, we have to watch out for counterfeits that offer themselves to be the one true Christ, that lead to abandoning the true Christ, that are substitutes for the one true God. Which then ties back to John's point of interceding for your brother. If you see someone sinning, what's the connection between that and verse 21? If we're sinning, it means we're not guarding ourselves the way that God wants us to from idolatry. You see a brand new truck. You say, wow, it would be nice to have a brand new truck. But I don't have $75,000. Or whatever. I think the entry level ones are still like 50, right? You say, I can't afford that. But I really would like it. All your thoughts become consumed by that. It's all you start talking about. You do other things that evidence a spirit of greed. Someone sees it and they say, eh, I could relate to that. No big deal. Or they see it and say, wow, did you see so-and-so at church? They're really obsessed with wanting that truck. Or they say, you know what? I want a truck too. Now both of you are being greedy and wanting the truck. What's supposed to happen in that situation? You're supposed to, according to other passages, confront that person and say, hey, are you focusing on this more than you're focusing on God? But you're also supposed to be praying and interceding for that person. When we don't guard ourselves from idols, we need someone to come alongside and intercede for us. So I think this phrase is not random at all. It's not just tacked on, no connection at all. John is saying... It should start with regularly examine yourself by these three tests, which is to guard yourself from idols and instead to have a relationship with the one true God. But if you start to not pass the tests, and if you start to walk in sin, God wants other believers around you to pray for you. They don't know if you are actually a Christian or if you never really believed, or all of those sorts of things, and we want to get really fixated on that, and the reality is, I can't answer that question before God for any one of you. I can say, you know, I'm pretty confident this person's a Christian, at a... At different funerals I've been in, 
There's, there's, I think, that struggle for the person who's preaching. Do you say so-and-so is a Christian? Do you say so-and-so is not a Christian? For some people, it seems really clear. For some people, you're not so sure. For some people, you're pretty sure they aren't. When we recognize that we're not the ones who ultimately decide that, individually in particular, we've talked before about the ongoing responsibility of the church to assess it for people who are part of the church. Collectively, we have to say, at this moment, according to our best judgment, this person seems like they are, this person seems like they aren't. But individually, if we leave that up to God, and instead we say, here's this person who's sinning, I need to pray for that person. I need to pray for that person because it is easy not to guard your heart from idols. I need to pray for that person because through my prayer, according to God's will, in confidence that God hears me, according to what God has said he will do, he will grant that person life. How do people get to be false teachers abandoning the faith and nobody sees it coming. There's lots of theories we could put forward. One is, I mean, there's notable people who've been connected with, um, like, really conservative groups. And we say, well, how in the world did that person just walk away from all these things? They were raised in it for so long, and they had such an influential role, and... Maybe they even wrote some kind of theology book and all those sorts of things, and they're like, I want nothing to do with God. Well, maybe it's because they got raised up into a position of leadership too soon. And that's probably true, but I think the bigger and more important thing to think about from a passage like this is somebody saw what was going on in their lives and didn't pray for them. Some of you have had family members who grew up in this church walk away from it. If we assume that assurance and our standing before God is a fixed state that we never need to look at, or that they are in some respect beyond saving because it's been all these many years and they haven't come back, we might stop praying for them. And I would encourage you not to stop praying for them. If we assume that because we've been a part of this church for so long, there's no threat that could possibly drag us away from God, and we are saved, and so there's nothing to worry about, those are the moments at which we are most vulnerable because we've forgotten the admonition to guard yourselves from idols. So keep praying for those who have gone out because as long as they yet draw breath, there is a chance that God may save them. And keep praying for those who are here because all of us are vulnerable to the extent that we become proud and think that we are beyond temptation or 
the risk of going out. If there is a situation that there are people like Judas Iscariot who walks with Jesus for three and a half years and every one of the other disciples are convinced that he's genuinely one of them and then he goes out, betrays Jesus, has almost a moment of repentance, but then goes out and commits suicide and, and all of these things. What's the difference between him and Peter? What did Jesus say to Peter? I have prayed for you. Now we can ask, why didn't he pray for Judas Iscariot and all those other sorts of things, and the Bible doesn't really answer that question, and that's not the point of what I'm saying. The point of what I'm saying is, Judas betrays and leaves and doesn't come back. Peter betrays and leaves and comes back. Jesus prayed for Peter. Are you and I praying for one another? Let's close. Father, these are weighty truths to consider. We want the kind of assurance that we never have to look at, the kind of confidence that never has to be strengthened, the kind of relationship that needs no work. But I think it's easy for us to forget that that's not really a family, that's a museum. You get something, you put it in a box, you put glass over it, it's all good. If it's insured, you don't have to worry about it. But in a family, there are people that you care about. There is risk involved. There's ongoing work involved. I pray that you would help us treat our church not like a museum, but like a family. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.